Around the world, there you go. That's uh, Daft Punk, I think, uh, bringing you the Fuzzy Logic intro theme. Thank you, Declan, for Irish voice. And here we are spinning through space, the dark, inky blackness of the universe, on a little blue planet. And on the crust of that planet is that little bit we call home, the bit that feeds us, the bit we breathe. We've got to look after it. We're currently tromping all over it with our size 12 boots. So I'm very pleased to invite onto Fuzzy Logic Dr. Margie Bohm, Senior Lecturer at the University of Canberra. Good morning, Margie. Uh, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm delighted to have my friend Nisa Skelton from the Canberra Times. Good morning, Nisa. Good morning. Lovely to be here today. So we uh, are going to kick off with just a couple of very quick snippets from This Day in Science. And this is for all you computer nerds out there who suffered Boolean logic at university. This is Augustus de Morgan. Remember him? He was the one who inflicted that formula on us. The Indian-born English mathematician and logician who originated the use of the slash to represent fractions. So that when you go 1 over 7, that means 1 seventh. And formulated what we now call de Morgan's laws, one of which is something like not brackets A and B is the same as saying not A or not B. <laughs> Hurrah! And also here is this dude, Christian Ehrenberg. I don't think he was called a dude in his lifetime. Uh, he died in uh, 1876, born in 1795, and he was the person who was the founder of micropaleontology, which would be tiny fossils found in rocks, I think. And I guess it kind of links into uh, the production of oil in some way, maybe, uh, which is, of course, causing us great grief in the Gulf of Mexico at the moment, spewing vast quantities of oil out there and making a big mess. Anyway, um, interesting thing about him was that he advanced the view that all animals, from the smallest to the largest, possess a complete set of organs and muscles, such as uh, sex organs and stomachs and so on. And he believed in the concept of a complete organism and that every animal was a variation on that. So there was a single ideal type, you know, that everything had the same set of bits and pieces that make them up. It proved to be a bit of a dead end. And he also used social behaviour as an important criteria, but he placed humans apart from other animals on the basis of intelligence. For some reason, that reminds me of... So when you're talking about males and females and sex organs, I spoke to a researcher a little while ago who um, was asking the question, why is it that we just have males and females? Why is it that we don't have some other kind of sex? And she's going to start a project looking at this question and trying to analyse why it is. I love that. (laughs) In mathematics, we do have different sexes. The Chinese came up with the idea of male numbers and female numbers. And male numbers were 1, 3, 5. And female numbers are 2, 4, 6, 8, the even numbers. And this all worked fine and dandy. Whenever you did plus any operation like plus or minus, you either got a male or a female number. Just like when people copulate, you get a male or a female. And then one day somebody drew a triangle with a side of 1 and another side of 1, and they measured the diagonal, which of course is root 2, which is neither male nor female, so they call them unhatched eggs. Unhatched eggs. Wow. That's amazing. I didn't realise that numbers were male or female. Did they, were there reasoning? Was there reasoning? Yeah, there's a sexual reason which doesn't take too much of imagination if you think of 2 and 3. <laughs> okay, we're getting to the kitty part of it already. But actually, you know, I love that point you made, Nisa, too, but uh, we kind of do have 
people who aren't really one sex for other because you have people who are born as women, but they, right. they develop male but they organs have, or vice they're versa. They're kind of a, a cross, I guess, yeah. um, and they have both male and female organs. But what about, like, we just take it for granted that there are males and females, and we don't think about, oh, what if there was some completely other kind of sex? So I don't think she's looking at whether there, there are crosses in the sexes that we have, but whether, why don't we just have a completely other kind of sex? I, I love it when people just think they challenge a basic assumption like that. So the other day I was listening to a really interesting program, Discovery, the BBC program, and they said, you know, we've got the four base pairs that make up DNA, G, A, T, E, C, G, A, and whatever, the four of them. And they said, well, why can't there be fifth or a sixth? And what they're actually doing, they've got a, uh, a research program where they're experimenting to see whether other base pairs can be manufactured and used in DNA. Wow. So why can't there be a D or an E or an F <laughs> or something like that? Well, it may be in other planets. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we just have to get out there. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's it's amazing the way we just take things for granted and we don't we never challenge that. And what your researcher is, is talking about is a functional third sex, maybe is a way of putting it. Mm, I have no idea how she's going to go about <laughs> answering this question: why we just have males and females. But it would be interesting to see. Oh, what she maybe comes she's out going with. to hang around some interesting entertainment joints. <laughs> as long as she's not caught by was it Channel Seven? <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway, we're, oh, we're back to the uh, more mundane now. Uh, on this day, on the 27th of June, chloros- chlorophyll was synthesised. So there's an organic chemis- chemic, chemical, normally occurring only in nature, but um, here's someone who's made it in a lab. So in 1916, chlorophyll A was synthesised at Harvard U- University, and it consists of 55 carbon atoms linked to 72 hydrogen atoms, 5 oxygen atoms, and 1 atom of magnesium. We might do it in the lab here while we're on the air. We've got the equipment. So, uh, Margie. Yes. How, how, how did you get into this? Well, first of all, what is your field exactly? I described you as somebody who, you know, before I came on, as someone who's interested in uh, outreach to teaching young people about science and so on. But you also have a background in physics and maths and so on, and particularly fluid dynamics about to do with the air. What, what is that? <laughs> I guess I'm an example that people with short attention span can actually get somewhere. <laughs> I went to university in the, seven, in the 70s and 80s, and I ended up majoring in maths and geography. I um, flunked out. I, I passed Physics 101, but I didn't like it and dropped it. And then I did my, my honours in maths, got bored with that. It took a whole year. Ended up working in acid rain research and did my master's in atmospheric chemistry. Then I worked for the United States Environmental Protection Agency in their acid rain program uh, in the um, 80s. Very exciting. I had a lot of fun doing that. That's when I first experienced working with people from lots of other disciplines, multidisciplinary projects, um, and uh, decided I needed to know more about physics. So I came to Australia and studied the physics of the atmosphere under some of the leading uh, authorities in the world over at CSIRO. And uh, and that's what I'm doing at the moment. So I'm a jack of a lot of trades, and, and I love the atmosphere. I love learning about it. Do you, do you feel that the, the sciences are artificially segmented into one? I kind of think you're demonstrating that they're not really. It, it is a, a human... Well, it's a technique we use to, to break things down to something that's understandable. Mm-hmm. But 
Do, yes. do you think it's artificial the way we do it? Yes, I do, and it has a lot later when we talk about the teaching, why we've gone the way we have. Um, I think the natural philosopher's view of the world was a sensible one. The way we teach science in primary schools, where the kids experience the phenomenon rather than the detail, isn't a bad thing at all. And I, and I really think that understanding is gleaned from the whole phenomenon, not just necessarily tiny bits of it. Somebody has to put it together. At the end of the day, do you, do you recall a moment in your past when you just thought, "I really want to do that. That's really interesting, like a person or an event or something that went science. Yeah, that really interests me." Uh, it's that's a very interesting question because in the end of the day, it comes back to knowing a teacher, doesn't it, or or a, or a parent or someone who helped you understand things. At high school, we had a, interesting enough an Irish uh, teacher. Uh, who taught us geography and I reckon that's the reason why I majored in geography at uni was because of Mr Bell and I kept in touch with him actually afterwards and we became very good friends Isn't it wonderful how one inspirational person can just make such a difference to the whole path of your life Yes, and our maths teacher Mrs DeVette she she always intrigued me my dad was always very good at maths and so our household ran around science and maths I didn't grow up in a very culturally dominant you know like we didn't read or go to the Gallery or anything. We did go to the, we did go to orchestra and ballet, but you know, I grew up in a farm. <laughs> we were very practical people. <laughs> that might have had something to do with it. But for the most part, I grew up in a time and in a country. I, I, I obviously am not Australian. I grew up in South Africa, and I'm of I'm English speaking South African, so I wasn't part of the Afrikaans culture. But I grew up at a time when the world was so much freer if you had intellectual interest and fascination and passion. You, we weren't being driven into directions. I feel that people nowadays are driven into directions. So I just explored, and I was very lucky that I had mentors who allowed me to do that. And, I, and that's why I, I have a very broad education, very broad interests. Mm. And, and, and when I do my research, they all play a critical role in that. Yeah, mm. I, I get a feeling that perhaps when you make that comment that you're thinking of the, the funding round, the, the merry-go-round that all scientists seem to live in these days where you have to show cause, why are you doing this, what's the economic benefit of it and so on, is, is that the sort of thing? I don't want you to say too much, obviously. Mm. I, I think it's just sad. And I think the thing, especially here in Australia, when I came to Australia in the early 1990s, I came here because we were the clever country. And I use were because I'm now an Australian, married to an Australian, very truly become an Australian. Um, and I came here because this is where the, the clever people were, and I wanted to study under them. I don't know if we can say that anymore. <laughs> and I think that's really sad. And what's happened is that we've stifled the maverick people, the people who are a little bit out in left field, who are making discoveries that are going to benefit us in 10 years' time. I think we're living on yesterday's discoveries. I don't know if we've got tomorrow's discoveries. Mm. Our, our funding has become too um, regimented for that perspective. We're not letting these great minds do the things that they're good at. I, I think I might describe it as the culture of managerialism, where everything is managed, reported, and uh, you have to account for everything that you do, why you're doing it, what it means, and so on. Yes. And yeah. if, if I can interrupt for a minute, I, I came across the most darling statement. It was made by Albert Einstein, who needs no introduction. And he said... If we knew what we were doing, it wouldn't be research. And a re- yes, that's that's a good thought. And amazingly enough, Bill Gates founded a research institute and he gave the director this instruction. He said, I want about half of your projects to fail. 
I was looking at their funding the other day because I've got a student from Sri Lanka who I need to fund, and he and I was hoping he'd fall under the the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and that's absolutely right. They'll give up to a hundred thousand dollars a year, and all they want is an out of left field project, one page. That's my kind of science. Wow. Well, we were lucky enough. Uh, Nisa and I uh, had uh, Dr. Richard Stazaka uh, on the program a while back, and. He had a year to write his book, didn't he? Yeah, he was approached by... It was Land and Water, which is now defunct. The government's pulled it down, unfortunately. But they approached him and said to him, what would you do for a year if we could let you do whatever you wanted? We paid you your normal wage and you were set free. And he said, oh, well, I'll potter around in my garden and write a book about it. And he's come up with the most amazing book and yes. it really inspired a lot of people. And, yeah, and he he's the kind of scientist who is a little bit left field and who just needs that freedom to kind of really flourish and yes. grow. So that's yes. Out of a Scientist's Garden. I do recommend it as a really good read. Mm. And... His affinity for soil and plants and what they're doing in the soil and the, and the things that they pull in out of the soil and, and what the water is doing uh, and also the way he works with community, which very much ties into, I think, with what you're doing mm. and you're trying to connect with young people who need to talk about science. And it's not as if we don't have a challenging world to work with now. I mean, we're facing some pretty big problems and... Um, mm. Does that is that one of the things that you're thinking about when you talk to these? How do you put this to them and motivate them without making them feel that it's a you know it's such a desperate cause? Oh, I, I think the, the first thing that I like to do is I like to let young people understand that science isn't about being right. Science is a way of thinking, and that it's about look see think, look see think, go out there have a look, see what you're looking at. Most of us don't do that, and then think about it. Because, yes, we do have big issues we have to worry about, but we have the capacity, if we think correctly and if we think a little bit out the square and we th- we, we're not afraid to think like that, that we can do something about it. And I think the key thing to dispel senses that I, there's nothing I can do about it is to let people recognise that what they think is important, Bill Gates and Melinda Gates, case in point, up to $100,000 a year, they believe what you think is important, mm. and don't be afraid to talk about it. I knew Richard. Uh, he was at um, CSRO when I came to my PhD, and we spent a lot of time just talking. How often can, do our young people have an opportunity to sit around the table with people who are relatively knowledgeable in the field, have practiced in the field, and just talk? And that, they, we don't do that, yeah. and that's what universities used to be like. And when, you, yeah. when we talked earlier about the inspirational moment in, in your thinking, in your development as a person, maybe what you're doing... And maybe what Richard's doing are people who will... And you never know what that little spark will be. And one of the proudest things on Fuzzy that I I did, the thing that I'm most proud of, is I brought in some college students on a couple of occasions, and we had three college, 11 and 12 college students. And I think I'll do that again too, because Mm. before the show they were so nervous, Mm. Mm. and then during the show they lit up and they were sparking off each other, and I'm going, wow, did you know all that stuff? And uh, it's not that they are experts or PhDs, but they really knew these things. Mm-hmm. So um, speaking of inspiration, um, before the program we were talking about this boat that you may have heard of. It's called the Plastiki. Mm-hmm. And it's this thing made out of recycled bits of plastic. And the whole hull is uh, uh, drink bottles, uh, soft drink bottles, and they crush them and they put uh, dry ice in them. They pressurise them with carbon dioxide. 
And uh, if you go to the look up Plastiki on the web, you'll find the picture of their uh, boat. And I've got it in front of me. I'll hold it up so everybody can see it. Mm-hmm. And uh, this thing has been sailing around the world and uh, talking about what plastic means to the planet. And do you know, so what I want you all to do is now look at your radio because you are listening to a radio or out of a computer. You could be streaming off the website, which is www.2xfm.org.au. We're streaming through that. And also we podcast to uh, Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com. And uh, that's coming out of a device made mostly out of plastic. So where does plastic come from? Well, the first example of it was by this gentleman named Alexander Parks, and in 19, uh, sorry, 1862, uh, he formed this stuff or trademarked this stuff called uh, Parkazine, and uh, later on became known as celluloid, celluloid, and of course that's what all those old films and things were made of. And then Bakelite was the first plastic based on synthetic polymer made from phenol and formaldehyde, yucky mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, invented in 1907 and all of those bits of plastic that everyone what's the first bit of plastic you can think of ever that you remember plastic bag a plastic bag oh, come on what a particular plastic oh. bag <laughs> oh nappies is this what you're getting at no not particularly no? I, I, I was thinking i had a big ears toy oh oh so um probably my dummy if we're talking about like <laughs> special met, plastic things you remember your dummy i remember my dummy being taken away and it disappearing one day <laughs> i'd have to think of buckets because we had to cut the food for the chickens and the rabbits and the ducks as children in a plastic bucket. In, and I'm sure they were plastic buckets. Yeah? Yeah. Well, the oldest bit of plastic I can remember is a Big Ears doll of little toy. And uh, I used to, you know, chew the top of his cap and all that. And it's quite sobering to think that that plastic still exists. It, mm. Because plastic does not exist in nature. There is no mm. natural process for breaking it down. Mm-hmm. So every piece of plastic around us right now will ling- live, linger, long after we're gone. Mm-hmm. And what's happening is it's finding its way into the oceans of plastic bags and things, and it's getting abraded and broken down into smaller and smaller chunks and then getting ingested into the food chain. So the smaller it gets, the smaller the organism is that can ingest it. So now it's finding its way into plankton and things like that. And so now back up to the food chain into our stomachs. That's right. And it's there pretty much forever. So there's this thing in the North Pacific Ocean called the North Pacific Gyre, and it's like a big eddy in the ocean current, and it accumulates this stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, Margie, before the program, you were telling us that you actually have an experience of sailing a large way across the planet. Yes, I have. And what was your experience? Oh, okay. We sailed from South Africa through the Atlantic, North America, Caribbean, um, Panama, and then into the Pacific, and spent a fair bit of time there down to New Zealand and then here and then I kind of got off the boat and got to the PhD <laughs> silly girl <laughs> and, it, and there were just two of us on the boat and uh, she's in Indonesia at the moment she's since been into the med and then back and I love the boat very much and we, when I have time I'd like to go and visit it again we met a fair bit of rubbish out on the ocean and the one place that really sticks to mind which is on the map is Raroya which is an island in the Tuamotos and that's the island which Kontiki banged into when it was sailing um, westwards uh, to prove that uh, people could have originated from South America. And um, in the morning we used to go and walk along the reef and pick all the garbage up. And every morning there would be garbage. And it's almost as, and the garbage 
looked like it was coming off cruise ships. I mean, it was bottles and plastic bags and polystyrene containers, which food had been microwaved in, and things like that. And it's it's, it's just really embarrassing. And that was, we I sailed in the 1980s and early 1990s. I mean, it's a long time ago now. It's even worse. Mm. And this ingestion problem that you're talking about, when you think about it, if we ate a piece of plastic, how many little valves and little holes in our plumbing could that block? Yeah, well, I think, I think I'm think not sure if it's biologically active, if it's chemically active in the human body. Probably not. You're shaking your head. Yeah, it's probably not, no. Uh, but we're not really sure what effect it does have on us. Um, but the thing about recycling, I did a little research on recycling as well, and uh, when we put stuff into the recycling bin, when well, we get that little warm glow out of it, which is a good thing, we should all do that, but it's actually not quite as simple. And in fact, I want to do a fuzzy show on recycling and get some people maybe who are collecting methane off the tips and so mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm. There's also a little business that's opened up out here at Fishwick, and they're recycling com- electronic waste, computers oh, and stuff like that. Yep. And I want to talk to them and see what they do with that. But it says here that, unfortunately, uh, recycling of plastics is proven to be a difficult process. And the biggest problem is that it's difficult to automate, making it labour-intensive. And typically, workers sort the plastic by looking at the resin identification code, that Mm -hmm. little number in the triangle. Mm -hmm. And uh, although common containers like drink bottles can be sorted easy enough because they recognise them, uh, however... Um, recyclables such as metals are easy to process because they've got big mangs, so they suck them off the conveyor belts. And so they're looking for processes to uh, to sort this stuff because if you're going to put it back into the manufacturing cycle, you need a way of uh, knowing what it is that you're putting back in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we need to start re-evaluating how we define the cost of things. Yes. Because to me, to t- for somebody to look our young people in the eye and say, your planet isn't worth hiring three people to do the proper sorting at a recycling plant. How can you do that? Yes. Of course our planet's worth three people to do the recycling at a recycling plant. We need to think about that. And the other thing is, I don't know if you guys have done this, but I have drink bottles in my car, and they've been plastic over the years, as, as one always does, usually old Coke bottles and things like that. And I don't drink the water because it tastes disgusting. Well, I was reading a few science... It started with a, an article in Science magazine. So I subscribe to science as many scientists do, and I read it. Yeah, well, Teddy's on. And, um, and there was an article about the leaching of toxic chemicals from various common food containers, especially if you reuse them. Biphenols? Ah, yeah. The details has long passed me by. Anyway, and I thought about this, and I know there's just as many articles to say they're not, but I thought I'd try it. So I I got some little glass bottles that fit in my little car holder, and I put the water in the little glass bottles. And it tastes so good that now I drink the water in the car. Out of glass bottles rather yes, than plastic yes, bottles. Yes, absolutely. Cool. And I refill my little glass bottles, and now instead of going through X number of plastic bottles a, a month, idea. I have two little glass bottles, and I've had them for over, it must be now 18 months, the same oh. two glass bottles. Yeah. It's funny how Food um, Authority has a statement, like a position statement, on leaching plastics. And I can't remember exactly what it is, but if you Google it, um, Food Australian Food Authority, that's not the right name, but I'm sure you'll find their position statement, mm-hmm. and they keep it very open mm-hmm. to being... Mm-hmm. So it's not saying that. So they're not saying that it's dangerous, but they're not saying it's not dangerous. That's right, and and the and the science is is very much uncertain enough that you could go either way. Yeah. I just thought I'd try it, and this is the look see think thing. You know, I wasn't sure. 
just go do a little experiment and try it. And it tastes so much better. My hydration levels are so much better. I'm feeling healthier for it. I'm actually drinking water. Wow. And uh, that taps into, uh, no, oh, there's a pun there. Um, <laughs> a- Amory Lovins from the Rocky Mountains Institute refers to what he calls the cradle-to-cradle mentality of manufacturing rather than the cradle-to-grave. Yes. Now, mm. I think with that, look, we're having a little journey here on Fuzzy Logic. My name is Rod. Uh, in the studio with me is Nisa Skilden and Dr Margie Bohm, Senior Lecturer at the University of Canberra. And you're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on Kimmy Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. And here's a song. This is The Journey by uh, somebody. Flatboy Sim, I think he is. Here we go. Stomo Observatory, ANU. I'm Charlie Lineweaver, and you're listening to Community Radio 2XX. But how are we doing that? Our signal is speeding across the ether at the speed of light. Only, there is no ether. And the sound is rattling around your ears, buzzing through your neurons. You're a vast assembly of protons, atoms, quarks, quantum weirdness. That's what you are. The universe is a strange place. Stranger than you imagine, stranger than you can imagine. I'm Charlie Lineweaver, and I recommend you tune in to Fuzzy Logic on Sundays at 11.30 a.m. on 2XX. Yay, that's us. Thank you, Charlie, and uh, thank you, Tom, for assembling that. Uh, uh, that was lots of fun, and uh, Charlie was an amazing character to get on the show. He's buzzed around the studio. We try to keep up with him. And I'm very pleased to say that our guest today is also buzzing around the studio, <laughs> Dr. Margie Bohm from the University of Canberra, senior lecturer and old-time regular on Fuzzy Logic, Nisa Skelton. Now, we were talking about your, uh, your research and you're about to launch or you are currently writing your next paper. But tell us a bit about your background in fluid dynamics and what does this mean to people like us who are breathing air around the ground level? I'm not exactly sure when I got interested in fluid dynamics, um, but it it resulted in me deciding to come here to Australia and studying under two CSIRO scientists, uh, Mike Rupak and John Finnegan, both of whom are eminent um, research scientists in their own field, and I'm deeply honoured to have studied under them. So what we look at is the turbulence and how it's generated. Um, and, it, and we're interested just in the lower part of the atmosphere. So, you know, maybe the first 500 metres, if that. 
we're particularly interested in how the atmosphere trips over obstacles like forest canopies or urban environments, buildings, uh, silos, things like that. The turbulence that's developed as a result of the wind blowing over these sort of obstacles and then how that turbulence moves things like carbon dioxide, air pollutants, pheromones in within that canopy itself or up into the upper atmosphere where it gets moved then from state to state and country to country. Now, as, as an ex-sailor, and I'm also an ex-dinghy sailor, by the way, oh, cool. uh, yeah. but this kind of microclimate stuff is very important because where's the wind coming from? And my dad told me that he stood up on Black Mountain Tower and he watched the puffs of air coming over the mountain and little pockets of air hitting the lake and then fanning out as it hit the water. And, and we think Lake Billy Griffin, I'm getting off topic here, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can remember being in a dinghy, it's a very fickle wind on Lake Billy yes. Griffin. We were tacking, which means sailing into the wind in one direction, and tacking into the wind coming in the opposite direction yes, absolutely. is another boat. Yes, yes, yeah. Meteorologists have it all wrong. You know, they keep saying there's easterlies, northerlies, southerlies, and westerlies. No, they're not. There's one wind direction, it's againsterlies. <laughs> the wind's always blowing against yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. So, so what's your approach to this research? I mean, um, how are you going about it? Okay, so my, I tend to work in a wind tunnel, so I'm very much on the theoretical side of things, and, and I love being there. So one half of my life is very theoretical, the other side is really practical. So I really like that, that mix. Um, in the wind tunnel, we can measure pretty much the whole system. Uh, there are a few things that are very hard to measure, like pressure fluctuations, and, and a few of those terms are a little difficult. But we are ca- we're able to control the flow. We're able to control what the flow is flowing over, how much um, uh, scalar carbon dioxide heat or whatever it is we're putting into the flow. We can control all that. We can measure. It's lovely. Then I work with people um, who study real forests. They've got towers in real forests with the instrumentation put up the towers things are a lot less controllable and we're liaisoning with people at at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada who've done work in Basel, Switzerland and again that's also real world measurements with towers in the canyons of Basel, Switzerland and we're comparing these three studies and trying to get an understanding of what's happening Ah. across the surface as a whole So what's what's the significance of the study? Is it telling us about how pollutants move around a cityscape? Well, the mathematics that we have is really rather poorly um, put into global climate models because the understanding is so complex. The math is really complex, so we use very simple formulations in the bigger models. What we're trying to do is, is, is simplify those formulations scientifically rather than out of convenience. Okay, And the other reason why I'm particularly interested in it is that it seems to me that as the air flows across all of these surfaces, it morphs from one kind of turbulence to the other. At the moment, our understanding doesn't quite capture the morphing. Um, what happens over vegetation canopies and within vegetation canopies is very different to what happens over urban areas and within urban areas. We don't have the morph in the middle very well. The work that I did at the end of last century, doesn't that sound good? (laughs) (laughs) Used a surface that is giving us some indication of this morphing. And that's what we're trying to do, is we're trying to understand how the flow morphs from the vegetation canopy to the urban canopy. 
Because it's quite hard to understand how complex it is. Because oh. from the layperson, it's you imagine kind of air flowing, and you can test how fast it's going. But I remember studying um, airflow, and once it got into the turbulent stage, then that was it. There was <laughs> it was totally unpredictable. Totally, yeah. you couldn't measure it or do anything with it. What do you what do you do with this turbulent stuff? Well, John Finnegan, the guy who I work with, is really brilliant, and they've and him and his some of his colleagues have come up with an understanding of. Um, as the wind it's slow in the canopy and then it speeds up above the canopy that that inflection as it speeds up that then drives instabilities and those instabilities create quite coherent mo- movements um, that are turbulent and then they cause the, um, the, the turbulence to be heads up or heads down and, and so there's coherent structures so even though when you look at the statistics it's all over the place in the average overall it's quite coherent and it's behaving itself quite well. So as we've understood things, especially over the last 10 years, um, we're starting to now get enough math and enough understanding, we can put this understanding into the models. So would you would you put a, a model of the Canberra's town centre into Oh, it? absolutely. Why not? Yeah. Yes, and it's fun to build them. It's like playing, you know. <laughs> yes, we build the models and we pop them in. And, and mm. would it affect the town planning, do you think? Um, not so much Unfortunately, again, because of how we define economics, not so much in terms of environment, but definitely in terms of building structures. So, for example, when they built Woden, those the, the, the models of the, the Woden um, town centre were put into the Pi Laboratory wind tunnel and tested for structural integrity. Ah. Yeah, and, and the dome for um, the Academy of Sciences was also tested in the, the, the local little wind tunnel. Wow. Yeah. And also because you're studying um, flow over bush areas, mm-hmm. what about bushfires? Is that relevant? Ah, that that's difficult to do in a wind tunnel because you tend to bu- burn the building down. <laughs> it's not a good idea. <laughs> but what we are just getting ready to do now is um, develop models, and we've built them, we, we, where we put enough heat into the heated surfaces of the models that we get those plumes rising up off the model. And if we can do it cleverly enough, there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to look at a fire front. Now, is this one of those fields of research? I think you were hinting at it, Nisa. So it's inherently chaotic. So a very small deviation in one part will have a hu- will, will magnify to a huge deviation on another scale. Is that one of the problems you have? Uh, not so much in the wind tunnel because we control everything. And we set the wind tunnel up to study specific components of this, the system. Uh, so I think I have it a lot easier than my colleagues who work in the real world. Certainly in the real world, it's very tricky. Oh, I tried the real world once. I didn't like it at no, all. No, no. But I, I like my dark pulsating tunnel. <laughs> but, but I have seen, <laughs> I have seen some television footage of a p- pedestrian walking past a skyscraper, you know, in a, on a cityscape, and they're being bowled over practically because of fantastically savage vortex of wind yes. that's rushing past the corner yes. of the building. And, uh, yeah, it's very violent at times. I think we might play another quick song. But, actually, this one is a little special. Well, I, I'm saying that because I put it together. Uh, <laughs> it's the Brandenburg Concerto. It's done on Moog synthesizer with movie science fiction movie clips behind it. And uh, I'm going to ask you at the end of the show uh, what they are. But uh, I've played this before, but I've added a few new ones. And so for a bit of fun, here's Wendy Carlos. She, who used to be a he, by the way, Nisa, uh, playing the Moog synthesizer and umpteen thousand uh, movie clips. You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show on Community Radio 
2XX 98.3 FM. And our guest today, Dr. Margie Bone, Senior Lecturer, University of Canberra, dynamic, fluid-type person, <laughs> Lisa Skelton, and this is it. To infinity and beyond. This is the Fuzzy Logic Science Show of Food Double X. It's all part of the science. Good science is good observation. You see, although you're still a mass, you are no longer an event in space-time. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. About the violet ray. The ultraviolet ray. Which you said was the highest color in the spectrum. You were wrong. Science is not one of us. Exterminate! Annihilate! Destroy! Give me Limsat 4, please, with a proton induction thermal scan. You're close. Give them to me. I can see you're really upset about this. This definitely reads about a 9.0 my weird shit meter. The Lords of Thermodynamics! It's alive, it's alive, it's alive, it's fuzzy logic, and that was uh, from Frankenstein, that last clip, and... Uh, just to give you a quick rundown of some of the other sound clips we had in that uh, little presentation there. Uh, there was a bit from Toy Story to Infinity and Beyond, and I'll just pick some at random. I'm sorry, Dave, that's from 2001 Space Odyssey. He's a scientist, he is not one of us. That's from The Hulk. And that rates about 9.0 on my weird shitometer from Men in Black. And so on. Anyway, we might get back into the substance of our discussion today and our guest, Dr. Margie Bohm, Senior Lecturer at the University of Canberra and Nisa Skilton and myself, Rod. And uh, now you've been involved with... Uh, hang on, over to you, Nisa, sorry. <laughs> now, Maggie, you've, I've noticed... Um, in, well, you've written a lot of articles for um, the Canberra Times. Um, you regularly contribute to our science pages. Yes. And one of the things that comes across in your articles is a real passion for teaching because you're a senior lecturer at the University of Canberra. And one of the things I'm interested in, um, how you teach and how you kind of pass on science because you often um, talk about really interesting projects 
projects that you get up to with your students in class. Yes, I love my students, uh, and, and I hope that they feel similar sentiments to me going into Teaching Stats 101 next semester. Yes, oh. right. <laughs> um, I, I, when I finished my PhD, I ended up at the University of Canberra by accident and, and uh, not by design. And um, they hired me to get involved in their science resource centre initially. And then I sort of moved around. And um, when I started thinking about teaching, because I'd been in peer research up until then, I hadn't really done much. I'd done guest lecturing and, and conferences, of course, but I'd never been a teacher or a lecturer. Uh, I started thinking about, well, how do we teach science? And... Um, it struck me that the way that we teach science is, is a little bit disjoint from the way that I, as a professional scientist, does science. And so I've, I've tried to approach the learning center there and then my teaching around this, well, what is it that I, as a scientist, do? And how can I get our young people to get those skills? And it's less about the, the, the quantity of facts than it is about a thinking process. How do scientists think? Because... We don't want to think about what we know. We want to think about what we don't know. And how do we teach young people to jump across from being comfortable with what we know into looking at data in such a way that they find things that we don't know? And so that's how I got involved in um, the inquiry-based look, see, think uh, kind of teaching. And I try and teach the subjects through projects that are open-ended, I don't know the outcome. I don't <laughs> expect to know it. Uh, and then I work with the students as if I were their research su supervisors, and we find the magic in the numbers. And uh, I think of it as revealing the magic in the data, getting the data to tell their secrets. It sounds very exciting. I wish I could go to some of your <laughs> classes. Well, it's hard work. <laughs> <laughs> well, give yeah. us an example, because I've read some of the amazing projects you've done with your students. Can you give us an example of what you've done with them? Yes. Um, we, we really do the statistics unit this way, and, and, and um, we, we also do a genetics experiment this way. So I'll talk about the genetics one because the statistics one is a little really out on left field. With the genetics experiment, we w wondered how can we teach genetics, but at the same time encourage young people to look for patterns that the textbook might not tell them about. Because what we find is that youngsters coming into university want the absolute answers. And, and if things don't match what's in the textbook, it's human error. But that's not how science works. Some of the most fascinating things we found out were as a mistake. It was a mistake. So we gave, we give them Drosophila melanogaster. It's the good old fruit fly. Uh, we have a bunch of nasty little traits that, that gets transferred from generation to generation. And we just let them have at it. And, uh, and then we encourage them to uh, come up with some understanding of what the, um, patterns are and what the inheritance theories are that's been exercised. Um, from first generation through to the, from, to the first babies through to the second babies. The students, I don't think, enjoy it when they're doing it. It, it comes, it hits home in its second and third year when they realize that what they really were taught to do was look for patterns in data. We really are artists, aren't we? It's just that the patterns are in numbers. Yes, and people tend to think of science as being a hard, white, lab coat kind of a thing where you've got mountains and mountains of figures and it's all just hard work but it's and it's not creative well it, it, it is creative it's highly creative and and it's 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 one of those interesting things it doesn't just come to you you think till your brain hurts 
Isaac Newton said that. We all know the quote when somebody said, Dr. Professor Herr Newton, whatever they called him, um, why is it that you are above others? And he said, it, I have stood on the shoulders of giants. But what he said after that was, I think till my brain hurts. <laughs> <laughs> When's the last time you felt till your brain hurt? It was Friday for me. <laughs> Actually, a, a little known uh, uh, mistake in the story often, often attributed to him is, you know, he was sitting out in the garden at the university and a naked woman fell on him. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't notice. <laughs> well, he did, but, but he discovered the law of depravity. <laughs> Yes, yes. So I really try and get my students to to step out the square. I'm a great believer in the maverick thinker, the, the Richard Sturzakers of this world. Hopefully the, the little Margies. I like to think <laughs> I'm a bit out there. And, and we are very much the lost um, um, thinkers, the, the global thinkers. We're difficult to teach. We're rather difficult to live with, which is why I love my husband dearly, bless his cotton socks. Um, we, we, we jump around, our thoughts are all over the place, and then one day we, magic happens and we make these interesting and different discoveries. So it sounds like you're trying to, rather than teach students facts and figures and formula, I remember, oh, terrible nights mm-hmm. of memorising pages of formula and... Mm. You're trying to teach them a way of thinking. Absolutely, yes, yes. And, and, and we do this with school kids as well. So year six is through year tens. We don't, oh, that would we be don't fun. work with the, the college students very much. And one of my favourite of all time favourite students is um, a young lad who was very difficult when we took him into the field, very difficult in the classroom, definitely a little troublemaker. And we brought him to the lab with the rest of his colleagues. They had collected insects out in the field, and they came in. They were looking under the microscopes at these insects, and they're learning how to name them scientifically. And he discovered he had a natural affinity for this. And so you went from an ADDH, total troublemaker, to a kid who ended up going back to his classroom, running an entire classroom session, teaching his peers how to taxonomically name insects. His parting con- content was to Dr. Margie. They call me Dr. Margie. <laughs> Dr. Margie, I didn't know you couldn't make money naming insects. <laughs> Which we forget, you know. We forget that so many kids don't have the upbringing we had. I mean, in my family, you went to university. What you studied was asked afterwards. You know? Isn't it wonderful? And that moment of inspiration that you've seen light up in that little child's oh, yeah. mind. And I can think back on a couple of things that I did in science. One was the teacher said to us we had the Bunsen burners. And <laughs> little, oh, yeah, Bunsen burners, little horrors, you know, putting the gas pipe into the sink and then chucking the ta- light at tapering. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, she said to us, okay, you're going to light the Bunsen burner, put nothing on it, you're just going to look at it, and I want you to write every observation you can about the Bunsen burner. And I wrote a few things. It wasn't all that inspired. But now the kids came up and said, oh, they've noticed that the, you know, the outside of the flame is blue, mm-hmm. the inside is yellow. And mm-hmm. Things I hadn't even thought of observing mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. And you've said, yes, this, this seeing part of it. But another thing that too, I remember in mathematics, and like, I was never particularly math, in fact, I was never academic of any sort, really, but um, our teacher in high school said, I want you to derive the formula for a sequence of numbers. Give me a formula that lets you calculate the sum of 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4. Figure out how... And I, and I took it home and I scratched my head for ages. I kind of almost got the answer, but I, I really was engaged by that. I'm the sort of person who likes that stuff, but give me a row of numbers to, to add up and you know apply this formula 100,000 times. Yeah. 
Forget it. Well, you know, it is so interesting how we get segmented into artistic and scientific so young. When I was in third year maths at the University of Natal in South Africa, there were nine of us in the classroom. It was very hard to fall asleep. <laughs> Tiny little classroom, and the professor would come in, and they had chalk in those days. And, um, you know... What they did to us, we were quite a snotty-nosed bunch. We were the math majors, definitely shoulders ahead of everybody else. Oh, that's back know. off on my mathematician. Yeah, that's right. And I know Nissa was studying engineering. I'm oh, engineering. <laughs> yeah, I remember having to share classes with the math majors. <laughs> yes, that's right. Anyway, what they did to us was we had to develop an understanding of the fourth dimension. And so did the fine arts students, third-year fine arts students. And they pitted one against the other. And guess who lost? Oh, it was a big wake-up call for the arrogant math students. The fine art students came up with these brilliant Im- Im- images of what the fourth dimension might look like. We come up with some kind of boring equation. Wow. And, and I think that that, you asked me what some of that was a major, huh, oh wow, what kind of moment in my life. And, and ever since then, I have not separated art from science because it's how you see and how you create these images and how you explain them that makes a difference yeah. it really makes a difference and, and, and I have to say my favorite comment my favorite favorite statement is that great achievements aren't written in journal papers or monuments they're interwoven into people into our lives and how we see things and then how our young people or our colleagues take those ideas forward and eventually someone will discover something that will make a huge difference that's a great achievement totally forgotten, totally unfunded may appear in obituary maybe but it gives that wonderful warm glow doesn't it, it's like oh cool <laughs> you know, so yeah so that little kid, I'm very proud of that little kid who discovered taxonomy, I hope one day he'll be a very famous scientist that's, yeah. And that's a, that's a great gift to somebody. And did you go outside? Did you know there was a, a lunar a partial lunar eclipse last night? <gasps> it was in my diary, and I forgot. <laughs> I was very tired last night. Oh, oh my gosh! When's the next one? Oh, I don't know. A I while love away. Lunar yeah. Have, has anyone seen a total solar eclipse? No. Have yes. You? No, I haven't. You have. I have. Yes. My mom and dad have. Yeah. I'm going to the next one. Wherever it is, I'm flying. I'm going. Where did you see yours? Yeah. Oh, a long time ago. But we stuck up pieces of paper on the wall, and you could see the little, the you know, yeah. the the <laughs> the bright spot being nibbled away by the shadow <laughs> yeah. of, the, yes. of the earth. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's really cool. Uh, yeah, I remember that's a long time ago. Yeah, my mum and dad went on safari up to the one in Zambia, so they drove up, which in the, in themselves was quite a, a trip. I'm so disgusted they never invited me. But they said that the African bush, they were in the middle of a game park, there were lions and noises, and the, the, the entire environment went to bed and then woke up again. And all the birds a, went quiet. All the birds time. went quiet. There was roaring of the lions during the dark period, and then when it started to become light again, the birds woke up with the normal section, <laughs> and it was only five minutes apart. Oh, did the chickens lay extra eggs? <laughs> they weren't chickens. This was a real game park. <laughs> well, they, they, were all, they were all munched. <laughs> Speaking of munching, I'm trying to think, I'm wrecking my brain to think of a segue into your story about mining, Lisa. <laughs> yes. but, uh, so mining uh, munching sounds quite similar. <laughs> we'll go with that. 
So my very last, I've just finished up at the Canberra Times, um, putting together their science pages. I'm off to um, to travel to Indonesia, which I'm very excited about, but very sad to be leaving my post at the paper. So my very last science feature will be coming out tomorrow, and it's on mining and some mining technologies that are being developed at CSIRO um, in Canberra. And they're doing some really interesting things. So they've, at the moment, they've had remote mining technologies around for a while where you can kind of sit in an office in Canberra, for example, sit at a computer and be operating machinery that exists out at Western Australia. But it does have its limitations at the moment and they're trying to get it better at this, at CSIRO ICT Centre. And some of the things they're doing are quite kind of left of field and quite cool. Um, one of, for example, the things they're doing is using, have you had a second life? Yes, so the, the online gaming. That's the one, yeah. So it's an online gaming community where at any t- one time in, um, in the day it could be maybe 40,000, 50,000 people on this online community. And they've built a um, just a test rock breaker. So it's kind of a, imagine a mechanical arm that bashes up rock and it makes it smaller. So it's handy for when the mines um, come out and they want to kind of gather up small bits of rock. And so they've built this into Second Life on CSIRO Island and they want to get people to come along and practice on their rock breaker. But the thing is, in their laboratory out at, based at ANU, they've got this little mini model of a rock breaker. Mm-hmm. So when someone comes along on Second Life and starts operating it, it'll start operations in real life. <laughs> so what their, their test model, um, it's kind of built into a bit of uh, wood and in the middle of the wood there's a hole and they put a rock down next to the hole and the idea is to push the rock into the hole and yeah. do it as many times as you can. So they test how productive people are and they try and make sure that they can be as productive as possible so they change different kind of characteristics of the model. So they're hoping to get a lot of people to get on and then the idea is, it's a big idea and it might, might happen, might not, but the idea is to um, build a whole mine in Second Life and get people to be working because there's an economy in Second Life where you can buy mm. and sell mm. land and products. Mm-hmm. So to get this whole amazing wine and people working and to see how it interacts in a virtual world so that they could possibly turn that into a real-world situation. Uh, <laughs> ah, Chief, remember that I thought you were going to tell me that they're hooking Second Life up to real mining equipment in Western no, Australia. No, no. <laughs> oh, wow, that would be incredible, wouldn't it? Getting and them to do the work for free. <laughs> I can think of a wonderful application of that all the Second Life people can vacuum my house. <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. And there's a lot of dusting to be done. And how about painting the outside? <laughs> you can have what little a, robots a, controlled three Second yeah, Life. Yeah. What, what a cool idea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to racking my brains. There is an example of where they're using people online to actually do real work. Uh, can't think of what it was. But in China, apparently, you're talking about Second Life. There are people who, you say there's an economy in, real, in Second Life. Uh, and these people in China actually earn real dollars by oh. achieving dollars second... I, I can't yeah, quite yeah. fathom this, but there's mm. this weird world that's not connected to the one that you and I live in. <laughs> it's amazing that um, people spend so much time in these virtual worlds and in worlds like World of Warcraft, um, doing things like go out and kill 50 beasts in the forest... And they will spend hours and hours going and doing that. It would make sense to turn that into something productive in the real world if you could yeah, kind well, of harness that. Give them a paintbrush and go around to Marty's place. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> 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 well, 
Oh dear, well look, we're, uh, we're running to the close now of uh, Fuzzy Logic for today, but uh, last week we had uh, Sonny Forsyth, and you had a story about him today, uh, Nisa, Yay. and that was good, he was on Fuzzy Logic last weekend. <laughs> we're on the same level of thinking, yeah, it's good, we're on the same brain. We're cosmically connected. <laughs> uh, so they've got an event out there on the 3rd of July, and what they're doing is they're making these pots, right? That's right. They're kind of a, if you just imagine a simple clay pot, um, and they act as a water filter. They found at the ANU probably about a decade ago that if you put water through this kind of um, clay pot that you can get rid of most of the bacteria yes, in the right. water. Yes, that's we used them in Brazil in the yard. Ah, mm. wonderful. Mm. And so they're trying to develop a project to get these pots out to communities that will use them. But it's a lot more complicated than just saying, okay, let's manufacture... 2,000 pots and send them out to everyone they've got to think about it in a much more strategic way and make it part of the community mm-hmm. so that people understand the importance of having these, these pots to clean their water and even employing the local community to build the pots themselves and, and actually I think that sort of thinking ties in really well with what Margie's been telling us about uh, people being engaged and about them owning it mm. and here it is, it's, mm-hmm. it's the same sort of thing really another level 